Well, friends, good morning. Good morning to you all, whoever you are. It is a joy uh, to be here with you as we continue on in this book of Philippians. Indeed, if any of you are joining us here in this series for the first time today, and you are unfamiliar with this historical document, let me tell you that as we open the book of Philippians, uh, we're going to step back in time about 2,000 years uh, to the very real world of the Roman Empire. Uh, For what we read today comes from no fantasy world, but rather from the very real world of first century Europe. From this letter on page 921 of your church Bibles, and please do turn there now, uh, we read of a letter written to a church in Greece, uh, written by a real man in Italy who wrote it in a real prison cell as he awaited his trial. And yet, as we read this very earthy, very real, very affectionate letter between an old pastor named Paul and his old congregation in Philippi, we read a letter written by an old man caught between two worlds, an old man on death row, kind of watching the clock, who clearly longed to leave this rubbish world behind, and yet an old man on death row watching the clock who is willing to stay in this rubbish world to ensure that this church joined him in the next. Accordingly, I don't know if you've noticed this, if you've been with us, but at various points as he writes this letter, that this old man, as he kind of leans back on his prison cell door, perhaps closes his eyes between sentences, Paul has the tendency to drift in thought between those two worlds. In chapter 1 and verse 10, Paul prays that the Philippians might have discernment for this world, but then instantly drifts into praying for a purity for the next. Likewise, in chapter 1 and verse 23, uh, Paul ponders his death and therefore going to a world that is, is better by far, but then the very next verse, verse 24 He comes back down to earth and he reminds himself that he will remain here for the Philippians' sake. And as we saw last week in chapter 3 and verse 10, Paul kind of drifts off again. He ponders a possible execution like his crucified Lord Jesus and and therefore sharing in Christ's sufferings and becoming like Christ in his death and therefore getting to this new world and attaining a resurrection from the dead. But then next verse at the start of our passage today Paul comes back down to earth and reminds himself, verse 12, not that I've already attained this or am already perfect. Accordingly, friends, so much of this wonderful letter uh, written by an old man who, who, who watches his prison cell clock and it tick back and forth it is a letter that, that oscillates between the now and the not yet. And therefore, how Christians are to live between those two worlds. How Christians are to follow their their great forerunner, Jesus, of suffering now, glory later. How Christians are to ensure that they will make it from this world to the next. How are Christians to make it from this world to the next? Philippians chapter 3 and verse 12. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it on my own, but one thing I do, 
forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Please be seated. August the 1st, 1992, Barcelona, Spain. Eight nervous men, six nationalities, one gun blast, and finally, at the third attempt, they moved out of the blocks. A muscular 25-year-old Canadian gained the fastest start, but he was quickly overtaken at the 20-meter mark by a younger man from Namibia. At 40 meters, every head had risen. A solitary breath was taken, legs propelled, arms pumped madly as lactic acid filled the lungs, and then something strange happened. The oldest man of the field started to move, and in seconds, it was all over. And to our great astonishment back home, the 32-year-old Londoner, Linford Christie, was 100-meter gold medal champion. And seriously, we could not believe it. The British won Olympic golds in, in rowing and, and cycling and equestrian. And British won Olympic golds in sports where you sat down, not where you ran. And yet, as we watched the BBC replay, what captivated us most was not that this was a British man, was not that this man was seven years older than the rest of the field, nor was it the slow-motion camera revealing his powerful legs or his pumping arms or the fact that Linford Christie did not even seem to take a breath, but rather what captivated us most was his eyes. For compared to every runner, Linford Christie's eyes were like saucers. He did not even seem to blink. Indeed, when the race uh, interviewers uh, commented afterwards on his eyes, Christie said, yes, it was the first time I went to the blocks imagining my lane was a tunnel with everything on either side just a blur. In Christie's mind, it was not what he had done with his old man legs or what he had done with his old man arms. In those brief moments between the starting blocks and the finish line, it was what he had done with his eyes that had won him the greatest prize in sport. How are Christians to make it from this world to the next? How are Christians to make it from the, from the solid starting block of the gospel to the upward call of God in Christ? Verse 14. Well, in the third chapter of this letter, this old man of the field, Paul, tells these young believers on their last on their first few laps of faith, that what they do with their eyes will be critical. Indeed, in this chapter, we note four things 
that Christians must look to, four things that they must see with their, with their eyes wide open if they are to make it from this world to the next. And the first of these, seen when observing that they experience athlete Paul, is the importance of seeing the exertion required. Point one this morning. Open, eyes open to exertion. Verses 12 to 16. Eyes open to exertion. Now, running 100 meters every four years and earning millions of dollars as you do doesn't sound too hard a job, does it? And as a teenager, Linford Christie thought it would be a very easy job to do. And so the problem for him is that he simply just didn't care. Christie was more committed to his job than at the local supermarket than doing any running. He got a kick out of sprinting past all the racist kids at the local athletic meets, but in his own words, he spent more time playing dominoes, drinking rum and partying than going to the West London Athletic Stadium. He'd been given all the innate ability in the world. He was a rare talent, born to run, and he knew it. God had made him fast, but he did not see with mature eyes, and Christie wasted his early 20s, such that age 24... At the height of most sprinters' potential, he was told he would not even go to the 1984 LA Games. Christie received no Olympic medal that summer, just a letter from his silver-haired coach, the former sprinter who wrote to him, knuckle down or walk away. Well, thankfully, for the next decade, Christie went with the former. And aged 32 years old, with that gold medal around his neck, he said, people say that that 100 meters is not that far, but they should try running it. It is a long, long way. It may be 10 seconds, but that had been 10 years to me. In short, at some point along the journey, perhaps when he read that letter from the former sprinter, he understood and opened his eyes and saw that his victory required exertion. Is that the same with Christianity? Do Christians make it to heaven through their exertion? Do they begin on the starting blocks of the gospel, but then ensure that a gold medal is attained through their own efforts? Well, we must be careful here, as Paul is careful. For in verses 12 and 13, Paul says, Jesus Christ first made me his own, and I do not consider that I have made it on my own. Likewise, 2.13, Paul says to these Christians, it is God who works in you. And in 1.6, he even goes as far as saying, it is God who began the good work in you. He will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so we must take care, lest we ruin our assurance saying to other Christians, heaven depends all on your effort. Or far worse, lest we ruin our gospel message saying to non-Christians, those who have not been made by God to run, knuckle down or walk away. And yet, because Paul understood himself to be made for Christ and understood that, that, that God would finish what he started, how does Paul run? What do these Philippians see on the slow motion replay? Do they observe a young man who who occasionally turns up in public to show off, but spends most of his time playing dominoes, drinking rum, and partying? No. Verse 12, they see an old man who still presses on. Verse 13, an old man who does one thing, forgetting the past, strains forward 
These Philippians are to open their eyes wide and, and see someone who does not rely on an innate preaching ability nor past missionary success, one so confident of his finish because of God that he does not slow down for a second, one who pushes harder seemingly than anyone else on the track, one who presses on and strains himself like getting the last little bit of a, out of the tea bag as he pours out his life for others. How do Christians make it from earth to heaven? Firstly, they see that it requires great exertion. Indeed, verse 15, mature Christian thinks that way. They are those whose eyes are wide open to the fact that Christianity is hard work. Mature Christians are not surprised by the difficulty of the mundane exercises of prayer and Bible study day in and day out. They see the potential struggle of, of following an increasingly secular world and, and also of just following their own interests. And so they press on. They keep lifting the weights of, of heavy pastoral cases and teaching their kids the gospel when they're, they're exhausted. And they keep forming new running partners, even though many running partners don't stay in Nashville for very long. And they even strain to keep their lips closed for the sake of unity in the local church. In short, they don't just cheer on the, the pools of life. Friends, it's very easy to read this passage passively, isn't it? Maybe even academically. To study the great Paul and to genuinely marvel, but to do so from the couch. And likewise, to cheer the labors of other Christians as we dig our hands into the popcorn bowl again. Thinking, I appreciate these great Young Christian runners, I'm so glad that I don't have to put my sneakers on anymore. Friends, that's, that's not the case. Real Christianity means real exertion all the way until the finish. For even old man Paul does not speak in the past tense. He does not say, when I was a boy, I pressed on, I strained. He says, I'm still pressing on and I'm straining for the take. The 19th century Scottish theologian Alexander White, who amazingly lived almost to 90 was asked at the end of his days, what is the Christian life like? He replied, aye, it's a sore fight all the way. A sore fight all the way. And so friends, if you're here this morning and you wouldn't say that you are a Christian, uh, perhaps you're visiting with us or perhaps you are young and, and you just come here because your mum and dad do, let me be honest with you as Paul is honest here. Christianity is no sledge ride of two weeks ago. It is a hard sprint for decades. As Jesus himself said, if anyone would come after me, run with me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And so before you make a rash decision, Sign yourself up for an Olympic-like effort following mom and dad and ultimately Christ. Let me tell you with transparency that Christianity does mean coming with absolutely nothing, but then giving absolutely everything. For when you become a Christian, you recognize that, that, that Christ has won it all wonderfully at the cross, as we've just thought about. In a sense, his perfect race is your race. But having trusted in him, you live in him and for him, running his race, which means a cross too. 
for it means dying to sin and selfishness and self-interest and walking uphill for others, for God's glory. Open your eyes wider, says Paul. Eyes open to exertion. Accordingly, and in light of that, there is a second thing that these Philippians must look to as they run. And secondly, that is others who are running. Uh, Point two, eyes open to examples. Verse 17, eyes open to examples. And do look there with me, verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. I don't know much about Olympic sprinting, but I do know that that in the 100 meters, that unless you're someone like Usain Bolt, you don't kind of look around at other people. As Linford Christie says, you must block out everyone else and gain tunnel vision. And yet in verse 17, Paul emphasizes that when it comes to the, the, the real race of the Christian life, looking at others is actually key. Earlier, Paul has said, I'm sending Timothy and Epaphroditus to you. I want you to see how they live amongst you. I want you to know that they'll run 800 miles for you. And likewise here, Paul says, imitate me. Remember how I run. But failing that, if you you haven't seen me, he says, keep your eyes on other Philippian church members who walk according to my example. Friends, I don't want to spend long here since we've already studied the importance of role models in chapter 2. And yet I do want us to see the importance not only of looking to the the, the great heroes of the faith, not only reading amazing missionary biographies or or perhaps following renowned pastors on social media, but also I want us to see that Paul stresses the importance of these Christians opening their eyes to ordinary examples of looking for people in their own local church to follow, looking for the, the, the hero small group leaders, the hero mums of four, the hero elderly deacons. And therefore, as a starting point for our church, I want us to see the importance of actually being willing to be seen close up. For like running, the the Christian life is is not just something that, that one reads about in a book or listens to on a podcast. The Christian life is to be watched by other Christians. We need other examples in this race. For as we've seen again and again in this letter, The Christian life is not something that we do in a social vacuum. The Christian life is is no kind of solitary early morning run before everyone else is up. We run in a pack in Christ in local churches. Verse 17 again, I'll let you ponder how you might apply it. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. How do Christians live between two worlds? How do Christians make it to the end? How do Christians stand fast Eyes open to exertion, eyes open to examples, and thirdly this morning, eyes open to enemies, verses 18 to 19, eyes open to enemies. Well, 12 years after Barcelona, there was another runner from London who made the news at the Olympic Games. For in 2014, Neil Horan entered the men's marathon. Yet unlike Linford Christie, Horan had not trained for this race. He was not even fit. Horan had no examples on the, the GB Olympic team. Indeed, Horan was not even on the GB Olympic team. And so when it came to the start of the race, he was not even there. And yet, when the leader of that marathon 
the men's marathon in 2014, a Brazilian man named Valdeli de Lima started to run uphill with just four miles to go. Shockingly, Horan set off downhill, jogging in the very opposite direction and straight towards de Lima. De Lima was seemingly in his own world. As he began the uphill slope, his eyes were almost closed. And although the Athens crowd shouted again and again, look out, it was too late. Horan inexplicably grabbed Delima and started to push him backwards. With the help of the crowd, Delima eventually freed himself, but sadly he dropped down to third and lost out on a running gold. Neil Horan never apologized for his shameful run. At the start of this chapter, Paul tells these young Christians that not only must they have their eyes wide open to the necessity of, of exertion and the importance of examples, but also if they run as Christians following Christ on his road to crucifixion and then glory, they must watch out for enemies. Indeed, like the desperate Olympic crowd back in 2004, Three times Paul calls out in chapter 3 and verse 2, look out, look out, he says, for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And in verse 18, Paul repeats his warning of eyes open here. You must watch examples who walk in the way of the cross, for there are others who walk as enemies of the cross. Verse 18. Now, are these enemies in verse 18 and 19 the same as the enemies in verse 2? Maybe in verse 2, the enemies that could push the Philippians backwards are are legalistic Jewish friends, whereas in verse 19, the enemies that could push the, the, the Philippians backwards are their liberal pagan friends. Well, the commentators are divided, and I'm not sure we actually know. Indeed, interestingly, the the details of their doctrines are not what actually Paul tells them to watch out for. For Paul tells these Christians in Philippi that they should look out for their enemies, not by their words, but by their walk. For can you see how these people walk and where these people walk to? Verse 19. Their ultimate end is destruction. But in the meantime, their God is their belly. They glory in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. Very sadly, these people, like Neil Horan, run the easy race of life downhill and away from the marathon finishing line, shamefully bumping into Christians as they go. Can you see? They are enemies of the cross, because they walk in the very opposite direction and in the very opposite way to the crucified Lord Jesus. Jesus' end was resurrection. Theirs is destruction. Jesus fasted, dying, hungry, and thirsty. Their God is their belly. Jesus' earthly shame brought heavenly glory. Their earthly glory brings heavenly shame. Jesus set his face like a flint towards the painful cross. They set their minds on all the earthly pleasures of now. They are enemies of the cross. And it is a striking way, a striking way for Paul to describe perhaps some of the Philippians' unbelieving friends. For it brings to mind at first very extreme behavior, does it not? 
Surely only a Satanist or some kind of jihadist, extremist, would talk about being an enemy of the cross. And yet through Paul's verse 19 description, we see that the, that the walk of, of one who is the enemy of a cross is actually the walk of most Westerners. For their lives are evidence in just a downhill amble, a gentle Sunday morning stroll through the mall, a brain that always ponders getting as much earthly stuff as possible, a body that champions what the world says is glorious, but what God says is shameful, a belly that hungers for more food, more lust, more gossip. Simply put, one who looks to be pampered at every turn. And yet verse 18, verse 18, despite speaking of these people in such stark terms, warning that they are enemies, please note that, that Paul has nothing but sympathy and sadness for those who will not follow the Lord Jesus Christ. For as he warns of these enemies in verse 18, he does so not with gritted teeth and sword, but with a lump in his throat and a tissue. Many walk as enemies of the cross, I tell you now with tears. Accordingly, for those of you here today who are not Christians, those who do not seek to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, those who at their most honest know that they are those who, who run downhill for themselves and not to the cross for the sake of others, those of you who live for this world and not for the next, I want you to know that although you may endanger other Christians through your worldliness, that there is no rejoicing here in an easy walk that ends in destruction. Indeed, like Paul in verse 18, our eyes are filled as much with tears for you as our eyes are filled with warnings for ourselves. Indeed, we pray. We hope and pray that you might turn and that you might run with Christ and find a great glory in tomorrow above all the fading prizes of today. And for the rest of us, we keep our eyes wide open. We don't just look out for examples, but we also look out for enemies too, potentially. Indeed, could it be that although you are running in the right direction this morning, that actually you are trying to keep pace with those who look to be crowned by the world? Friends, of course, we cannot run out of the world, but we are called to carefully consider who we are running with. Eyes open to exertion, eyes open to examples, eyes open to enemies. And finally this morning, four things to look to, to make it through to the next world. Eyes open to eternity. Eyes open to eternity. In the final two verses of this glorious chapter, chapter three, Paul reminds these Christians that, that if they are to make it to the next world, that they have to keep their eyes on the next world. They must run like him with eyes open towards the goal, the prize. To avoid the danger of setting their minds on earthly things, these peoples must ultimately stare at their heavenly passports. Verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven. They and we too, if we are here as Christians this morning, must make time to look to eternity. And specifically here, Paul says we are to lay our eyes on two things. 
Firstly, verse 21, we await, we look forward to the transformation of our lowly bodies. This past year, the Olympic Games were postponed for the very first time in their history. But the very first time the Olympic Games were actually cancelled was in 1916 amid World War I. It was the year when many lamented not only the loss of many games, but the loss of many, many lives. And that year, the elderly poet and atheist A.E. Hausman famously described one body returning from war to England. And in his poem, to an athlete dying young, goes like this. The time you won your town the race, we chaired you through the marketplace. Man and boy stood cheering by, and home we brought you shoulder high. But today the road all runners comb, shoulder high, we bring you home and set you at your threshold down, townsman of a stiller town. Smart lad to slip betimes away from fields where glory does not stay, and early though the laurel grows, it withers quicker than the rose. Eyes the shady night is shut, cannot see the record cut, and silence sounds no worse than cheers after earth has stopped the ears. What was Hausman's depressing point? The body does not last. The ears are deaf to the crowd when you are in the earth. The eyes at the end are shut to those who will overtake you. And so well done, son, for escaping a world where glory is more fleeting than the flowers. Better to be remembered with a body young than a body old. In many ways, the atheist's poem sums up the futility not only of world war, but the futility of life without the world to come. And yet how different, how different the vantage point of the Christian, who may mourn at death but not without hope, knowing that because of Christ's resurrection, the one who trusts in him shall be raised too, knowing that though the, that the lowly body may be lost, a glorious body like Christ's awaits. An eternal body whose heart will not stop. An eternal body whose organs will not be wasted away by cancer. An eternal body whose legs will not require a walking stick. An eternal body whose mind will not be governed by anxiety. An eternal body whose conscience will not wander back to all manner of guilt and sin. An eternal body whose eyes and ears will not stay closed, but will enjoy the sights and sounds of heaven forever. An eternal body that is glorious like Christ's. Friends, that is the prize. That is the goal. Picture it. Set your eyes upon it even now. And very finally, verse 20. With eternity in view, open your eyes to the one who shall give it to you. You know, the thought of a new eternal body is sweet, but it is nothing, is it? When compared to the thought of us seeing, verse 21, the eternal king who shall subject 
all things to himself. Friends, the ultimate goal, medal of heaven is not seeing our eternal body, but bursting through the tape, verse 20, to see our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And friends, if we stand fast throughout this grueling Christian life, and if we fix our eyes on the examples in this very room, and if we look out for enemies and we run together, we will, in God's strength, make it through to the new world to see him. If we follow in the footsteps of the faithful like Paul, one day our faith will be turned aside. And so right now, we must make time. Make time to open our eyes daily to the risen Lord Jesus Christ and the glorious thought of seeing him. And in the importance of this and the steadfastness and the journey and the glory of bursting through that finishing tape is captured perhaps best and most famously by John Bunyan's character, Mr. Standfast, in the second part of Pilgrim's Progress. Bunyan describes his final moments like this, and with this we shall close. When the time came for Mr. Standfast to haste away, he went down to the river of death. Now there's a great calm at that time in the river, and when Mr. Standfast was about halfway in, he stood a while and talked to his companions. And he said, This river has been a terror to many. Yes, the thoughts of it have also frightened me. But now, I think I stand easy. For my foot is fixed upon that which the feet of the priests stood while Israel went over this Jordan. The waters indeed are to the palate bitter, and to the stomach cold. Yet, yet the thought of what I am going to doth lie as a glowing coal in my heart. I see myself now at the end of my journey. My toilsome days are ended. I am going now to see that head that was crowned with thorns and to see that face that was spat upon for me. I have formerly lived by hearsay and faith, but now I shall go and live by sight, and I shall be with him in whose company I delight myself. I have loved to hear my Lord spoken of, and whenever I have seen the print of his shoe in the earth, there I have coveted to set my foot. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, for those of us who have trusted Christ, for those of us who have been made for Jesus, for those of us who will not make it on our own, Father, we know that we are not there yet. And so, Father, would you please help us to fix our eyes on the exertion necessary, the everyday examples that we need, the enemies that we must watch out for. And ultimately, Father, would you fill our eyes right now of the glorious thought of eternity to come, a place of new bodies and a place where we shall see your Son 
and shall reign with him forever. In his name we pray. Amen.